Hi, my name is Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and here's all the key news in the world of battery materials this month. Welcome to April's edition of Recharge, the podcast of Battery Materials Review. In this month's Recharge, we're delighted to have an interview with Ken Brinsden, Managing Director of ASX-listed spodumene concentrate producer, Pilbara Minerals. He talks about what his company is experiencing from the corona pandemic, gives us an update on current demand conditions in hard rock lithium, and also explains about some of the issues that his team have had to fix in order to improve recoveries in their processing plant up to their targeted levels. But first of all, here's a recap of some of the key features, news, and analysis from April's edition of Battery Materials Review. With equity markets bouncing at the beginning of April, it seemed a good idea to look at what stocks and segments within the battery materials sector are likely to perform into a stock market bounce. And that's our first focus article for this month. We look at the market behavior during the dot-com bust and the global financial crisis to try and understand how the market may behave in the current event. Our second focus article looks at the likely impacts of the coronavirus outbreak on demand and supply in the sector, but also focuses on some of the opportunities. While there may be a negative demand impact in the near term, there is plenty of potential in our view for the longer term EV event to be positively impacted by the COVID-19 outbreak. And we discuss that in more depth in the article. There was a limited amount of news in the raw material space this month, but a couple of items stood out. First up was the news that Volkswagen will shift to the NCM811 battery chemistry on its mass production EVs from its current NCM6.5 1.52 chemistry. VW has said that it plans to sell 3 million EVs by 2025. That would require around 300 gigawatt hours of battery cells, so that's a lot of raw material. The company also said that it expects mass production of cells to take its battery costs well below $100 per kilowatt hour by 2025, which would make its EV business profitable. In drilling news this month, there were some positive infill results from Talon Metals at its Tamarack Nickel Copper Cobalt project in Minnesota. It also published a PEA over a fraction of the resource, which supported a a seven-and-a-half-year project producing nickel copper concentrate with a capex of 219 million US dollars and C1 opex of 472 per pound of nickel. We'd also flag Gallon Lithium's resource upgrade on its Hombre Muerto brine project in Argentina. Given its high grade and very low magnesium to lithium ratio, this project is rapidly moving towards being world class. It just needs a little bit more resource to tip it over the edge. Unsurprisingly, given the state of the equity and debt markets, it was another tepid month for financing and battery materials, with only $39 million being raised. Funds raised in the sector is now down 87% year-to-date March. In M&A news, Czech-Polish utility Chez announced that it will acquire a 51% stake in European Metals Holdings' Sinovec project. The multiple is only $8.7 US per tonne of lithium carbonate equivalent resource, one of the lowest takeout multiples in the sector over the past two years. Moving to downstream now, firstly with battery manufacturer LG Chem, which has reportedly suspended plans to spin off its battery unit this year due to market conditions. The company has also been in the news this month as it acquired a 223,000 square meter TV factory in Turkey which it will convert for the next stage of its European battery expansion. 
it's quite a good move because it presumably means that they don't have to go through the sort of planning application hell that Tesla is going through with its German Gigafactory project. There's bad news for German battery manufacturer Varta, with Korean Newswires reporting that Samsung Electronics has switched to Chinese manufacturer EVE Energy for its Galaxy Buds Plus wireless headphones. It looks like Varta will just have to manage being a key supplier for Apple's AirPods. In EV land this month, General Motors certainly earned a lot of column inches with its launch of the Ultium battery and its BEV3 modular infrastructure. GM is partnering up with LG Chem to build its next generation batteries and, as with VW, believes that mass market efficiencies will take pack costs below $100 per kilowatt hour. However, disappointingly, Reuters reported that GM and Ford only plan to sell 320,000 EV units per year in North America by the mid-2020s, only about 5% of their total auto production. Given that Tesla produced 367,000 EVs in 2009, this doesn't seem like an ambitious sales target. Wood Mac reported in its Q4 Energy Storage Monitor that US residential storage deployments maintained their positive trend at the back end of last year. US storage deployments as a whole hit a record 523 megawatts in 2019. And the future is rosy as Woodmac forecasts that deployments could rise to 7.3 gigawatts by 2025, largely driven by utility-scale projects. On the technology side, BYD released its new blade battery, which utilizes the LFP chemistry, meaning that it's safer than standard NCM batteries, but the layout brings an increase in volumetric energy density. Moving on to some analysis now, and European EV sales were again strong in February before an expected market rout in March. Chinese EV sales were down 72% year-on-year in February versus negative 82% for ICE cars. How fast Chinese auto and EV demand recovers in March and April will be a key bellwether for what we can expect from Europe over the next few months. Wearable shipments were up 100% year-on-year in Q4-19, with earwear up 250% for the year. This is obviously a key growth area for specialty battery manufacturers. Interesting to contrast this growth with the minus 1% growth in smartphone shipments during 2019. Chinese small lithium battery apparent consumption went negative growth in January-February as manufacturing activity collapsed. It's going to be interesting to see how rapidly that recovers because there's a key difference between EV batteries and consumer product batteries in China. A high proportion of EV batteries are produced for domestic consumption, while a high proportion of smaller batteries for consumer products are for export markets. It's possible that the two could become differentiated given the virtual collapse in Western world consumer demand for discretionary products. In our materials ranking this month, cobalt fell five places as the restocking cycle seemed to end, and cobalt sulfate and LME cobalt prices both fell substantially. As expected, non-exchange-traded materials outperformed exchange-traded ones in March. That is likely to reverse in April, in our view. March was again a really tough month for equities, and even the S&P Global 1200 index was down 13%. The Selective Battery Value Chain Index gave up 16%, as did our downstream equity basket, and our raw material equity baskets were down between 25 and 41% for the month. The outlook for equities is difficult to predict, with two extremes on the cards at the moment, either a V-shaped recovery or a U-shaped depression. 
We seem to be following the V-shaped recovery trend at the moment, but I don't think the market is adequately pricing in the risks of demand destruction, and I'm certainly wary that the U-shaped depression might end up being closer to reality. So that's the end of our news roundup for this issue. If you have any questions on any of the topics I've covered, please contact me, or you can find more information on our website at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. Moving on to our interview now. So I'm delighted to welcome Ken Brinston, who's Managing Director of ASX-listed Pilbara Minerals, which operates the Pilgangora Hard Rock Lithium Project in Western Australia. Ken, thanks very much for joining us today. Pleasure to be with you, Matt. Moving into the questions straight away, I think it's fair to say that 2019 was a pretty tough year for Pilbara. You went into commercial production on the mine in March, which was a, a fantastic result. But since then, you've been beset primarily by recovery issues with the plant and also by a, a weak market for spodumene concentrate. Can you just give us a recap of what wasn't working as planned with the plant? Yeah, challenging period, and, and there's no doubt it's taken us longer to to get to you know designed capacity throughout the plant, whether it's recovery, um, the effective throughput, or even product quality. They've been, relatively speaking, a simple task in comparison to recovery hitting design. But really, the the key changes in the plant that have ultimately defined its success relate to. Uh, the removal of free iron from the plant, that's the stuff that's typically generated by the plant itself and getting rid of that to ensure that you can maximise the effect of the flotation part of the circuit. Uh, the second is an important balance through the process of grind size and, and the grind size, you want sort of a Goldilocks zone for flotation. You don't want the material too small because it'll report to slimes and be rejected by the plant, but equally you don't want the particle size too big because then it won't float. So the Goldilocks zone is quite important, both in, in its stability and continuity over time. That's a key area of focus. And then more generally, there's a question of control all the way through the plant, making sure that the plant doesn't have surging capacity or variation in volume and or, or tonnage throughput because that also makes it difficult to balance the plant. They're probably the three areas where that have defined success now for us in achieving the, the design recovery in the plant. Great. What are the actual methodologies you've used to raise the metallurgical recoveries? In a flotation facility like the one that we've developed or combination of dense media separation and flotation, stability is key. That's true just about all the way through the plant, whether you're dealing with dense media separation or whether you're dealing with flotation, but especially in flotation. Flotation is a particularly, or lithia flotation, is a particularly sensitive exercise. And because not that many people have done it over the years, it's not well understood, I don't think, really by technical people in the mining industry in Western Australia Historically, it had only been done at one other location, being the the, um, the Greenbushes mine, the old warhorse down there. So getting your hands on the right expertise and, and for that matter, uh, learning the key technical inputs, honestly, it has proven to be harder than we might have originally assumed. But I'm also really proud of what the team's achieved because we've built a very large-scale facility. It's wholly integrated DMS and flotation, flotation at, at some serious scale, and we've now mastered it. And that's no mean feat. Now, it took us probably six months longer than we would have liked. And I appreciate 
that's not only frustrating for people that are that are involved in Pilbara, but it's also frustrating from the inside. But the good news is we're now in essence there and we've achieved design capacity and it's a credit to the team. And um, you're referring to your recent release where you updated on the uh, recovery numbers. Going forward, when you come back into full mining, what do you think are the sustainable recoveries for this plant? What sort of an impact does that have on your operating cost levels at, at full production compared to what you have reported? Well, it's crucially important. So what we're after in terms of design is recovery between it's about 72% through to about 78%. And it's dependent on, on the particular ore type that we're feeding or the blend of, of ore that we're feeding to the plant at any one time. Roughly speaking, if we're getting 74 75% recovery, then we're on the money. And um, that's the result that we're after. As I said, the good news is we're now largely there. In our most recent campaign, we achieved average recovery of 72%. But importantly, within that, we had um, a 72-hour period at 75%. So, so that tells us that in terms of the combination of balance, all the, all the key criteria I described earlier, and we've basically got the, the pitch right and plant is able to now achieve the, the required design criteria. So a fantastic result. What do we expect going forward? Well, we expect basically more of the same. Now that the lessons have been learned, the technology and the, the equipment has proven its wares, we should be able to continue to achieve that. If not, continue to optimise it slightly. I think we've got through the, the lion's share of it, but it's possible there's a bit more to be eked out of the plant. The recovery now is really second only to greenbushes. We, we think greenbushes achieves recoveries in the range of sort of 75% plus and maybe even as high as 80%, but they're also feeding the plant a slightly higher grade. So, so I guess for us, what we designed and, and what we'd achieved historically in, in test work is now, in essence, being achieved in the plant. And as I said, that's going to average something like about 74 to 75% over time. Now, you cut production at the back end of last year, given the weaker-than-expected concentrate demand. What rate are you mining at now, and what does that make your planned production for financial year 20 and, and potentially the year afterwards? Yeah, we haven't put any specific guidance out, Matt, because the reality is there is still uncertainty in respect of the direction in the market. As you pointed out, uh, we made the difficult decision to, but nonetheless the right decision, to back off production so that we weren't just churning out more stockpiles. That's not serving anyone's purpose. Firstly, it's consuming our cash, but equally it's just making those stockpiles more, more visible to the customers downstream. So the disciplined approach is to, is to back off production. So that's what we've done. It's constituted nothing like really the, the entire plant's capacity. That would have varied between, you know, say 40 to 50% of the underlying mine capacity, I, I would hazard a guess, over about the last nine months So since we made the decision to embark on that strategy. Now, I'm glad that we did, and I hope that it demonstrates um, some discipline in respect of the market. It's not as though, you know, the lithium world, you know, and spodumene in particular can't be compared to the likes of, you know, iron ore or, or coal. It's not as though there's this massive liquid market that you can 
place a ton. You have to have a customer who ultimately wants to take that ton, consume it, and turn it into lithium chemicals. So, so you have to be disciplined, work with your customers. That's what we've chosen to do, and I'd like to think that that's been the right decision. Uh, it's had the effect of conserving our cash, and it's critical in a, in a market like the one that we're experiencing today, and it should make us a, a stronger business as inevitably demand returns to the market. Okay, great. And you sort of alluded to inventory levels there in that answer. What's your understanding of what spot you mean concentrate inventory levels look like at, in Western Australia, but also potentially in China as well? Yeah, it's a subject that gets a lot of attention and deservedly so, but I don't think the situation's quite the way people might imagine it. You know, there needs to be a distinction as to what constitutes usable product or or readily usable product in light of the market conditions. And I think that what exists in the supply chain both within Western Australia and and within China is probably about about let's say it's roughly three hundred thousand tons of SC six product that would be readily available to a chemical converter who's participating you know in the current market. Now China consumes probably one point six one point seven million tons of of spodumene concentrate today. So does that really constitute a significant stockpile? I'm not sure it, it does. And more the point, if and when the market turns, there is a lot more buyers to come to market. They don't have any stocks at their chemical facilities. And in most cases, they don't have any offtake in place. So the relative position of the stocks being, for argument's sake, a maximum of probably three months' worth of supply would, to me, indicate that the situation could change in China quite quickly on the assumption, especially when the domestic market returns. So so whilst it's worth paying attention to it and monitoring it, I'm not sure it's such a big issue as people might imagine. That's my view as to, as to the general stocks position. So probably one of those conditions that could change relatively quickly as and when the market turns, which which we'd argue inevitably it will. It's just a question of when. Okay, that's an interesting point. So we're obviously in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic now. What are your thoughts about what demand could do in the in the near term? What are you hearing from industry contacts? Is China getting back to work? And what sort of demand are you seeing for you your concentrate product at the moment across the industry? The front end of the lithium supply chain, so the combination of you know, raw material supply like spodumene and, and or brine sources of supply were already in a go-slow mode, you know, pre the, the, the COVID-19 impact. So actual effect of COVID-19 in China, at least to date, hasn't really been such a big deal. Yes, it's true that plants were, were shut down, but really if they were shut down for two weeks for Chinese New Year or they were shut down for six weeks as a result of the combination of Chinese New Year and, and the COVID-19 impact, because the industry was already going slow anyway, I'm not really sure that that made a huge difference. The real concern and or area to watch now is, is what happens in respect of end-use you know, demand, and by that I mean fundamentally the batteries themselves, you know, do they end up in a, in a car, in a bus, in a truck, in a commercial, 
van or even in energy storage. So that's the area that, that we're sort of intensely focused on now to try and understand the direction of the market. Yes, it's true that, that um, car sales and, of course, EV sales have dropped away substantially in the periods of January, February and obviously likely March. Uh, but there's also moves afoot in China to continue to support the industry. So give it another couple of months to try and determine or settle probably more, more the point that you'd have a clearer view. Current demand, I think, you know, in light of the commentary I've just given you, it's not really any materially different today to perhaps as it was, you know, six or eight weeks ago. It was already going slow anyway, and I sort of feel like that's, that's, that's really the current state of the market as well. We've recently signed up a new offtake with Yibin Tianyi, who are, who are very closely aligned with CATL. And their offtake will help, I believe, our, our situation in respect to the Pilgangora project. But from an industry point of view, I think it's still nothing to get excited about. Moving on now, one of the issues that we hear a lot about with regards to the battery industry is qualification. Lots of different views as to what this means. Could you just describe from your point of view as a producer what qualification entails? Yeah, well, as we set up for, for each new off-tape position, there was a series of samples that, that grew in scale to assist the customer in understanding you know, our spodumene concentrate, what's being delivered, and, and not even so much about the grade, but also about the other elements that are stacked up in your, in your concentrate. And then there's a link to the, the next customer. So... For example, if you're an average chemical converter in China and you're, uh, you're participating in the key supply chain of one of the battery or the tier one cell manufacturers, then they're going to pay attention to where the, where the spodumene concentrate is coming from. So it feels like once, you, once you're embedded in somebody's supply chain, then you've got a, as good a chance as being a key link in the chain to the ultimate qualification of the product for participation in a cathode material or a cathode mix with a tier one supplier. So the technical input is a step-by-step approach. Typically that involves larger and larger samples. We're not directly involved in the ultimate qualification for the, this, the key cathode materials guy or the, the cell maker. But by inference, you're a link in the chain. That's the way to think about the, the qualification process. And how far in advance of, say, an offtake agreement do you have to engage with regards to qualification? Is it three months, six months, longer than that? Yeah, that's a good question. I think there's been quite a bit of variance in the offtakes, of the offtake agreements that we've set up over the years. I would suggest perhaps it's the difference between something like about, you know, six months and a maximum of, of 12 months, it would be of that order between the initial engagement and then ultimately signing up an offtake agreement. Okay. And is there is there ongoing monitoring of your product from a qualification point of view? Yeah, yeah. I think you would say that's exactly what happens. Yeah. So every chemical converter is going to be cross-checking the raw material delivered to their facility. They might very well have multiple streams of spodumene concentrate going in, so it's safe to assume that they'll be testing them all and forming a view about what's best for whatever product they are subsequently producing. 
and they're looking for consistency and continuity of supply, uh, not even just the absolute specification, but does the specification change over time. In 2019, you released a number of expansion studies, including the potential for a low capex modular expansion. Can you just give an update on what that would entail and how quickly you could ramp up production when demand returns to the industry in a big way? Yeah, there's several parts to that question. So the first is practically what are you delivering? So we could see a lot of logic in and really a lesson coming out of stage one capacity was that if you're going to build a big chunk of of spodumene concentrate capacity, You have to be careful as to how that capacity matches the downstream chemical conversion capacity. And there was a period of time before we started moderating the mine production where we would have been, in essence, outstripping the capacity of the new chemical conversion capacity coming on from our customers. So that led us down a path where we should consider alternate engineering solutions to segment the expansion capacity and give ourselves a better chance to incrementally expand rather than putting a big expansion in place in one hit. And uh, several benefits are derived from that. Obviously, you can you can uh, minimise the upfront capital required and you can spread the capital spend over more time and you've got a better chance to, to match the capacity at, at a mine level to that of the chemical plant. So, so all very important initiatives. Um, the good news is that the engineers of Pilbara came up with some smart solutions that ultimately delivered, in fact, that very, very solution. So the ability to segment the capacity and to use latent capacity within the existing facilities as part of those solutions. So, so we're really happy with the outcomes. They're subject to more feasibility study work now, and um, we'll have more to say about that in the coming months. And uh, can you just give an update on where you are with your balance sheet, how much cash you've got, and what's the situation with your debt currently? Yep. So as at the end of March, we had 108 million Australian dollars, and that's a combination of cash and irrevocable letters of credit um, as it relates to shipments right at the end of right at the end of March. So from our point of view, that's a good result basically probably better than what most people would have expected, but a combination of all the things we've been talking about, the effect of improved recoveries, lowering the unit cost of production, disciplined use of of the stocks available in our system to match customer demand, that type of thing. So that's been helpful. In terms of the debt outstanding, we, we have 100 million US dollar Nordic bond outstanding. That's payable on or before for June 2022. Given that we're probably in a situation where things are going to go sideways in the lithium market over the next three to six months or so, what would you say are the main catalysts for Pilbara over the next six to 12 months? Because we've come so far now in respect of recovery, that's no longer a key driver to cost. Historically, it was. But because we're largely at design now, now the, the cost driver or the key cost driver to reduce costs is production volume. So what we're looking for, and one of the reasons why we're only too happy to to sign up additional offtake, is to make more sales so that we can produce more because that's now the leverage in continuing to reduce our costs 
So ideally, uh, in a perfect world, we would be producing at 100% of the plant's capacity, so nominally 330,000 spodumene concentrate tonnes per annum. Our cost base would be 320 to, to 350 US dollars a tonne delivered to China uh, per dry metric tonne. And we'd be receiving, for argument's sake, you know, today's price for spodumene being, let's say, 420 to 440 US dollars a tonne. And if so, we'd be, you know, we'd be making a reasonable operating margin. That's, I guess, the ultimate aim. Now, in the meantime, uh, whilst we're re- operating at a reduced capacity, the target is something somewhat more modest than that. And logic is that we operate the mine, but we're not we're not losing operating cash flow. Yeah. So the opportunity for us is really more sales translating to higher production, therefore reducing unit costs and opening up an operating margin. And uh, just to conclude, what do you think differentiates Pilbara from the other lithium producers and developers that the market's not really picking up on at the moment with your current valuation? I often hear people say, look, the lithium, you know, in the lithium game, there's just too much lithium in the ground, but it misses a, a key dynamic that's probably equally true in in lots of subsets of the resources industry. Yes, it's true that there's lots of lithium in the ground, but what is rare is the combination of clean spodumene in the ground that readily recovers to to an SC6 product. It carries some serious scale, which ultimately drives economies of scale and therefore lower cost of operations. And that those that that resource is close to existing infrastructure that ultimately ensures you can deliver to either a chemical plant and or international markets cost competitively. That is rare, and that's what people miss. That's why the Rios and the BHPs of the world can can produce iron ore at you know, 25 US dollars a tonne and sell it at, at 65 US dollars a tonne. It's because there's no shortage of iron ore in the ground, but there is a shortage of mines like Yandy, Yandikagina, Mining Area C, you name it. You know, there's only there's a handful of iron ore mines in, in the Pilbara that drive, you know, incredible cash margins for those guys as iron ore producers. And, and I'm not saying, I'm not suggesting for a second that iron ore is the same as as spodumene concentrate, what I'm suggesting is that there's very few mines that are ultimately going to deliver very low cost of operations. And Hilbera Minerals is lucky enough to own one of those rare mines. Okay. Ken Brinston, Managing Director of Pilbara Minerals, thanks very much for your time today. Good on you, Matt. Happy to be with you and stay safe. So that brings us to the end of our podcast for April. You can get more detail on any of the topics I've discussed in the latest issue of Battery Materials Review, which you can find at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. I'm Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and this has been Recharge. Thanks for listening. <laughs>